Good morning, Gospel Hope, and those of you who are guests. Um, it is a pleasure to look at you one more time or to see you one more week. And for those that we're meeting for the first time to, to get formally introduced. Um, as you've already heard, we've been working our way through the book of James, and uh, we've been walking it through since chapter one, and we're going to uh, do that line by line until we get all the way until the end. And so, uh, depending on where you've picked up on the conversation, um, you can feel free to go to our podcast and get all of the past messages that we've preached uh, from this particular book, as well as some other series that we have out there. And so, um, as you've already heard, we are, we've worked our way up to chapter 3, and we're focused on verses 13 through um, 18 this morning. Um, but before we dive in, let's make our prayer and declare our desperation and need for God's help, shall we? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we thank you and we praise you for... Um, we thank you for your son, and we thank you for your word, Lord God, and its enduring presence throughout time that it is timeless, Heavenly Father. It is not a relic, but it is perpetually relevant. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord God, that comes in and enlivens us, Lord God, awakens our understanding and allows us, Lord God, to hear from you, understand you, and know you, Lord God, in ways that the, the flesh, Lord God, cannot do on its own. We thank you, Lord God, for redeeming our hearts, redeeming our ears, redeeming our hearing, Lord God, redeeming our character, Lord God, making transformation, Lord God, in us possible. We ask this morning, O oh God, that as we stand before you, that you would do the speaking, that you would do the working, Heavenly Father, that you would move out of the way, Heavenly Father, anything I bring to the table that would serve as a distraction to what you want to say. So, Lord God, glorify yourself and edify your people. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, um, one of the more compelling cultural conversations that's taking place right now just kind of wrapped up yesterday with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice. And uh, what's been interesting about that conversation, even as I look at some of your faces and body language, there's a variety of different feelings about that. And uh, that's one of the beauties of this church is how diverse we are, not only ethnically, socioeconomically, but we're also very diverse in some of our political leanings. And the, the additional beauty of that, and we're going to dig more into that, is that we also um, are, are in that, there's a beauty in our diversity because we're able to, to lay it down at the cross of Christ and allow all of our identities and interests to fold into him. And so I, that's one of the things I just love and enjoy about being uh, a pastor here and being able to serve uh, in that way. But uh, again, the conversation. So typically, uh, you know, Supreme Court nominee confirmations aren't like high ratings uh, material that everybody gets glued to the internet or their televisions watching. It isn't. It isn't the stuff of great drama that uh, most Americans enjoy. I mean, those of us who have some kind of political leanings may pay attention, but this particular confirmation uh, had some real landmark implications. It was a milestone in the sense that uh, it clearly and definitively leaned the Supreme Court in a conservative direction. Uh, which was of much uh, concern for uh, many who obviously, for many on both sides of the aisle. But in addition to that, there was something else that's happened over the last three months, and it was a, a, a conversation around some of the past happenings within the life of the, of the nominee and now the actual Supreme Court justice. And so most of America who cared at all or some who didn't care at all found themselves uh, looking at their television screens or, or capturing sound bites or reading articles and trying to figure out what in the world is happening with this guy and why are so many people talking about it. It because you have a Supreme Court justice who was uh, accused of sexual misconduct. 
And so if you follow these hearings at all, what they are about in their essence is confirming not just the nominee, but whether or not this individual has the kind of character that is consistent enough and representative of the kinds of things that we want to represent the nation and also to interpret the law and to shape the moral conscience of a nation in many ways. Because our laws, for many of us, uh, uh, the way our laws pan out and the way they flesh out and what we deem to be in our legal systems as, as right and wrong or wise and unwise, those are the things that we tend to live by in many cases. They do shape the moral fabric of our culture. And so the Supreme Court bench is a serious thing. And so over the last three months, uh, a major part of the conversation, and even in these confirmations, has been very much about not just the seat that was going to be taken, not just whether or not it's going to lean the court one way or the other, but about this particular person's past life and behavior, and whether or not that person's past behavior and conduct is representative of a kind of current character that should sit on the bench. There's a, there's, there's, a, there's a huge question out there that the culture is both asking and answering simultaneously. It is, if you did it in the past and you were a bad person or a bad actor, then you'll probably do it again because fundamentally people just don't change that much. That's one of the cultural dialogues, that there is some real bad conduct out there and that, that we demand at the highest court of the land, we demand the people who lead us to have a certain consistency and a certain continuity of both character character, and conduct. Well, it isn't just in our politics that we should demand that. We should demand a certain consistency of character and conduct even in our own lives. And the Bible has something to say about that. So this isn't a political issue. This is a principle issue and is a very personal issue. Because quite honestly, it isn't just elected officials, public servants, and people who are, who are in high demand and making big rules who we should require that from. We should require it from the people who we see looking back at us in the mirror every single morning. And so when it comes to this whole idea of a consistency of character and a consistency of conduct, I'd like for us to take a look at the book of James together, and as we look at these passages, we're going to make some discoveries about what begins to shape our character and conduct. And specifically, what shapes our character and conduct is actually where we get our wisdom from. So I want to set the table really quickly. When it comes to wisdom, we've all heard the word, but what is wisdom? Wisdom is how we know what to do with what we know. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. So you don't have to be the smartest person in the room to be a very wise person, as long as you know what to do with what you have. But what's also critical to know is where does your wisdom come from? So all of us have had uh, maybe the, the, the unfortunate experience of seeing or hearing about a lung surgeon or a, lung, uh, or a surgeon who, who smokes cigarettes. It seems to be a departure from wisdom. This person knows everything that they need to know, but why would they do something like that? That seems like an unwise behavior. Or maybe the mechanic who constantly has a raggedy car. You can't figure that one out. Or the hairdresser whose hair's never done. It's not a deficit of knowledge, it's a deficit in doing. It's a deficit in follow through on what they know to be true and right. So, 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 so we know that it isn't necessarily an increase in information that we need to have wisdom. We need to make sure that our wisdom comes from the right source in order to do the right things and to have a character and conduct that reflects the kind of continuity that honors God. As I've been reading the book of James, I'll tell you, I've had to often jerk the steering wheel, wake myself and remind myself, we are actually talking to Christians. We're not just talking to Christians, but we're actually talking to Jewish believers. Now, the ethnicity of the believers that James has been talking to for the last three chapters isn't as significant as the history of those believers. Here's why. 
You see, if James is talking to Jewish believers, he's then talking to people who have legacy and history, multi-generational history around the topic of religion, uh, the topics of treating one another well, loving your neighbor and loving your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus made it famous, but Jehovah of the Old Testament said it first. You understand that this isn't a brand new concept that we should treat our fellow man well and that we should live harmoniously and amicably. This wouldn't have been a new conversation for the Jewish converts, those who had come to Christ in this way. So as I listen at the kinds of things that James has to constantly talk to this particular congregation about, it's jarring because it would almost seem as if this was the first time they had heard these things. Many of the principles and ideas that James is driving home seem to, to not just be new, they also seem to be incredibly simple. Who doesn't know that they shouldn't treat their fellow man well? Who doesn't know that they see someone poor, that they should treat them properly? Who doesn't know that, especially people who say that they are people of faith? And so what it lets us know that, that, that this isn't an issue of common sense or more knowledge or information. It is an issue of where we get our wisdom from, come, where we get our wisdom from, who and what is influencing the way we think about those that are around us. And so if we look at today's text, there's one uh, major point that I want to drive home, and it is this. Wisdom from above produces a continuity in character and conduct. Where my wisdom come from is key. Wisdom from above produces a certain continuity in our character and our conduct. James, over and over again, has talked about this idea of what comes from above. As a matter of fact, it's not the first time that we've heard James say this, and we'll get there in just a moment, but there are four basic ideas I want to drive home today when we talk about wisdom from above produces a certain continuity in character and conduct. Those four basic ideas are these. That continuity is one that is reflective of the cross, number one. It is one that is effective for the cross. That's number two. It is a continuity that is protective of what was wrought in the church by the cross. And then number four, it is a continuity that is only active in those whose focus is the cross. This is where we're going. If you happen to fall asleep and you wake up, you are somewhere amongst those four points. I promise you. That's where we're going. All right? So if wisdom from above produces a certain continuity of character and conduct, where do we get this idea from? If you look at James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, James introduced this idea to us very early. He says, every good and perfect gift comes from, is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of of his creatures. So James tells us very early in his book that wisdom, any good and perfect thing, if it's good for us, it comes down from the Father of lights, if it comes from above. So when we talk about wisdom from above, we aren't just talking about a trap door that opens up in heaven. We're specifically talking about wisdom that comes from God. It is able to have a very particular and specific kind of effect in our lives. And it says that this wisdom that comes down, it is good and perfect. That means that it accomplishes God's will and it perfects our character. If it's perfect, think about us as a piece of fruit. When a piece of fruit is perfect and ready to be consumed and eaten, it is, it is fully ripe. And so wisdom that comes down or whatever comes down from God, it is good and it is perfect, accomplishing his will and also accomplishing a certain transformation of character in us. That is what wisdom that comes down from God is able to do. 
Now, another thing that we often learn from James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, notice that it says not only is this, 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 these things that come down from God good and perfect, but the scriptures inform us that in God there is no shadow of turning, there is no variation, meaning that God is immutable. He is consistent. He isn't constantly changing his character or changing the rules of salvation. He isn't a good and benevolent God one day and then some kind of evil God that we don't know how to interact with the next day. And so we gain great confidence and, 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 and also great, 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 great confidence from God's own uh, uh, continuity of character. The fact that he consistently is uh, uh, the same person today and forevermore and even tomorrow. We know that we can look to God and grind, find great comfort in his immutability and his faithfulness. And therefore, those who know him as father, he is constantly working in our character that we would echo that in our own lives, that we would also be a people who has a certain continuity of character. And so therefore, we want wisdom that is from above. Let's begin to walk through specifically some of the verses here in chapter 3. Beginning with verse 13, James says these words, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Verse 14 also, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. James does a, a job here of giving us an insight of what wisdom from above looks like, but also uh, defining what it looks like in contrast. He shows that, that, that wisdom that is from above manifests itself in a certain meekness and a certain kind of conduct, but it will not show up as bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. One of the first things that we can learn from this particular text is this, is that a continuity of wisdom, excuse me, a, th th this kind of wisdom has a continuity that is reflective of the cross. How so? We first see a meekness of wisdom modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three clutch moments in Jesus's life where his true character and the meekness of wisdom really shine forward. One is in the night prior to his arrest in the Mount of Olives. The scriptures show us in Luke chapter 22, verses 42. You just write that down for your reference. It won't be on the screen. But Jesus is there, and he's praying before the Father, and he asks, all right, Lord, if there's any way that this cup should pass from me, please. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Again, we see Jesus also in another uh, a clutch moment where uh, uh, the, just before he is arrested there in Matthew chapter 26, verses 53 and 54, and, 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 and Jesus tells his disciples to stand down because they're wondering why he won't defend himself. And Jesus says, do you not know that I could call him my father and he would dispatch or deploy 12 legions of angels to come to my assistance? This is necessary that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And so Jesus chooses not to defend himself in that moment amid the option. But yet again, even when Jesus is yet on the cross, nails in his hand and nails in his feet, he looks down at both his accusers, his assailants, and those who have, who have, who have been treacherous against him, and even his murderers. And he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is in Luke chapter 23, verses 34 and 35, as he hangs between two thieves. What do we gain from this? What do we learn from this? Here it is, the Lord Jesus Christ 
who has options seem to be operating from a completely different kind of wisdom from the rest of the world. Under impending death, if I had the option, of course I would run. Under impending false arrest, of course I would run. Under uh, uh, hanging from a cross and having clearly the option to, 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 to end this, of course I would do that. And be able to forgive those around me, I don't know if I would be able to do that. But Jesus does. Why? Because there is a certain continuity of character that, he, that is fully reflective of the cross. You see, the cross is about this. It is about a kind of meekness, of wisdom, that asks this question, how can I put we above me. How can I put we above me? In all of those clutch moments where Jesus had to make a certain decision as to what he would do next, where his life is at risk, the wisdom that he leans on is not one of selfish ambition. It's not a, a kind of ambition or a jealousy. It's not one that seeks to preserve and protect self. He says, how can I put we, the audience that I came to save, how can I put the we, how can I put the larger audience of people that God has called me to above me and my individual interests? That mentality is fully reflective of the cross and it's obviously not yet fully reflective in the saints there that James is talking to. Because again and again, you see he uses his adjectives that show that every ounce of their focus in some way, shape, or form is about the self and what they want to accomplish. So again, wisdom from above produces a certain continuity of character and conduct. And that continuity is reflective of the cross. When we act in certain ways that are selfless, when we use wisdom and we look, on the, 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 we look at the will of God and we can see how to elevate the, 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 the majority above the, the, the me, the minority, when we see opportunities to elevate the interests of others above myself, we are operating with a kind of wisdom that comes from above that might be totally uncharacteristic of the world, but it calls us to be fully reflected. We are now reflecting the ethics of the cross to put others before me, to put the we, if you will, before me. But look at verse 15. Verse 15 shows us this. It says, this wisdom that comes down from above, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. Man, that's a heavy set of adjectives to lay on a group of folks who are believers. But he says that if you're operating with selfish ambition, that this is, this is, this is demonic and it doesn't come from above and it's unspiritual, this is crazy. But, but, but here it is. The kind of wisdom that God calls us to not only has a continuity that is reflective of the cross because it, it causes us to look more like the Christ in the way that he makes decisions, but it is also producing a kind of continuity that is effective for the cross. Let me explain. If you were to read uh, uh, in any of the Gospel Hope Church bylaws or in any of our external media communication, if you came up and got a card off the, off the table and you saw the words selfish, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, would you step in? No, you wouldn't, because, because that's just not the kind of branding, not only that we want as a church, it's not consistent with, the, with, with what heaven is saying. It's just not, it's just, it doesn't show the kind of continuity that the character of God has. But here's what I want us to see, that the continuity, the, the, the kind of continuity that comes from God, the kind of wisdom that comes from God, it is effective for the cross. Not just reflective of the cross, it's effective for the cross. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, just before we found ourselves completely covered over with the Senate confirmation hearings, the great cultural conversation was around Colin Kaepernick, the new face of Nike's Just Do It campaign. 
Now, what was interesting about that is many people thought that that was a gaffe in brand management. As a matter of fact, they thought that there would be some uh, kind of reversal in what we call brand equity. Does anybody know what brand equity is? All right, brand equity is what happens as a result of how people perceive a product regardless of the actual performance of the product. So let me give you an example. People who set their shoes on fire per Colin Kaepernick's face being a part of the campaign, they weren't saying the shoes don't work. They're not saying that the actual product is effective. They're not saying that the genuine article isn't worth having. They're saying we don't want it anymore based on our perception of the brand. So brand equity influences how we perceive something regardless of how it actually is. We as the church are the Colin Kaepernick's of the gospel. We are the face of the brand. What kind of equity are we offering the gospel? In other words, regardless of how powerful the genuine article is, the Bible being true, God being loving, Jesus did die, lay down his life as a voluntary and substitutionary sacrifice for us. But then if people see us and they see things that are totally opposite, totally selfish, totally evil, totally demonic, we begin to offer up a brand equity that causes people to back away from the gospel. And so wisdom from above produces a continuity of character that is effective for the cross, not just reflective of it. There is something about the way we act amongst one another and toward our world that actually draws people's attention to God, according to Jesus, and give him glory. Not just notice that he exists, not just acknowledge that he exists, but to actually celebrate his existence based on what they see us do and how we act. Wisdom from above is critical. It is not enough just for us to read Bibles, attend services, and build up more gospel knowledge unless we are operating in wisdom from above. And that's how we connect the gospel that we're learning to the world in which we're living and working. There is no doubt that the believers that James is talking to are familiar, not just familiar, well-taught, not just well-taught, memorized from their childhood up, the precepts of good old religion. There is no doubt, this, this, is the, this would be the ancient equivalent of people who grew up in the Bible Belt. They know the precepts, they know the ideas. So it isn't about increasing what we know, it is about allowing it to transform us so that it changes what we do. Wisdom from above produces a continuity of character. Why? It's a continuity that's reflective of the cross, a continuity that is effective for the cross, and it is a continuity that also, it, that, that brings the world in view and allows them to see that our wisdom is a part of our witness. Our wisdom is a part of our witness, and it gives the world a glimpse of what matters to God. Having never read a Bible or having read one copiously, people come in to see how the people of God operate. And they say, well, that must be the stuff that matters to God because they claim to be his people. They're pretty passionate about it. They're pretty dogmatic about it. And so wisdom is critical for the body of Christ, but specifically wisdom that is from above. Let's continue in our reading. James tells us that this wisdom is not one that comes from above, but it is earthly, it is unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile 
practice. Now, this is interesting, disorder in every Bible practice. I mean, I can imagine that where selfish ambition exists, that there could be a variety of different issues. But why does James take a look at or talk about disorder in particular? Well, next week's message will help you see some of that because there's all kinds of internal fighting and bickering uh, um, that's going on within uh, this particular congregation. But, but, but even more so, disorder. This is so interesting. So, so this, this idea of disorder means that there is a disconnect between the leadership and the fellow the leadership and the fellowship. There's even disruptions between them. As a matter of fact, the church, in the absence of clear wisdom, absence of wisdom from God, looks like this. It looks as if there is a lack of complete unity between where we want to go and where the people are actually trying to go. There, there is a, 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 our diversity becomes destructive. In other words, difference of opinions becomes opportunities for clash rather than opportunities for collaboration. Uh, there is a lack of community in any environment. As a matter of fact, the church begins to look like this, a place that is marked not by unity, diversity, and community, but a place that is marked by tyranny, revolt, and anarchy. You know what tyranny is, right? Tyranny is when those at the top rule and lord over those who are quote-unquote underneath or following their lead. In the absence of godly wisdom, in the absence of wisdom, what, what happens is wisdom of the people who are in power seek to, to hold on to that power and lord it over the people that follow them. We become tyrants. In the absence of godly wisdom, those who are following decide to revolt when they become dissatisfied or with the conditions of those that are leading. There's also anarchy where everybody from the top to the bottom, from the pulpit to the pews, decide to play by their own rules. In the absence of godly wisdom, things get incredibly hectic and crazy. But wisdom that comes from above looks a very specific way. It produces an order, but not just order. It produces a kind of order and harmony that is only supernaturally uh, induced. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 begins to show us something of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses uh, 12 through 27, if you want to read all of it, we'll read pieces of it here. But there are three paragraphs there between 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 12 through 27. And in those three paragraphs, there's a description of the church as a body. The Bible tells us there in verses 12, uh, beginning with verse 12, it says, for just as the body, one, for just, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit they were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It is one and it has many members. What the scriptures would have us to know is that where there is godly wisdom coming from above at work within the church, there is an innate unity. But the scriptures go further. If you look at verses 14 and following, some of them will be here on the screen. It shows us that, uh, uh, but, but God says this, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body and each one of them as he chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts yet one body. And so in the previous uh, verbiage, Paul there began to talk about the great diversity of, of, of abilities and gifts that there are in the body and that we all can't be the hand, we all can't be the nose, we all can't be the feet. And because of that, the Lord in his wisdom has all caused us to come together as a beautiful body. And so not only do we see the unity between the head and the body, but we also see unity between the diversity of the members. But unity and diversity isn't the only thing that we need. According to the final paragraph of the same passage, we need this. We need to know that God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there will be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another 
together. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. In these three paragraphs concerning the composition of the body, what we learn is that wisdom from above would inform our hearts and remind us that we are a body, not a business or a building. And as long as we understand ourselves as a body and not a business or a building, we understand that my hurt is your hurt, your downfall is my downfall, your pain is my pain, my celebration, my praise is your praise, that we, come, we, are, we, are, we are eternally connected to each other. And as long as we are a body, that wisdom informs our conduct and our character and the way that we move toward one another. Not only this, but wisdom, the same wisdom from above would inform us that if we are a body, we are supernaturally enabled with unity, diversity, and community. In other words, this isn't just people being on the same page. Let me give you an idea. If, the only, if all we had was unity, we just need to know what our meeting time is. We're all here in the same place at the same time for an extended duration to hear God's word and we go home. Ready, set, go. And you're sent, right? Or wherever you go, you're released. But then we also have this incredible diversity. If we didn't have diversity, then we would all come here in unity and we would all expect all of us to look the same, uniformly. Wouldn't like you if you didn't look like me, act like me, or sing like me. But then God went even further. He brought not only unity, he brought not only diversity, but he also talked about how we commune together, how we care for each other. So it was not a, it's not enough that we just be in the same place and that we look a little bit differently and that we have these different things, but our differences connect in beautiful ways that are supernaturally built together. But then not only that, we are also called that we should move toward each other communally as if I am yours and you are mine or that we are one and the same and that I should elevate my interests or your interests above my interests. You see, we are a body, not a business, not a great company, not, a, not, a, not some kind of supercharged church plant just looking to try to rule the world with numbers and more buildings, but we are a body. And because we are a body, it begins to influence the way we see each other. But this is the wisdom that is from above, that we are a body, that we should have a continuity of character that is reflective of the cross, that is effective for the cross and causing others to look at our God, that we should also have a certain continuity of character that is fully protective of what was wrought by the cross. This uncommon, supernaturally induced diversity and unity and community, this is what was purchased by God. This was done by God. It was constructed by God, and it exists nowhere else. This is what the cross has done. Now, here's the question. How do we get this wisdom? How do we get it? I mean, if, if, if this has been the sales pitch that we desperately needed, and that there is a, a great contrast between the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, we don't want to be people who are uh, um, damaging the brand of the gospel and making people think ill of the Christ. How do we get this wisdom? The Bible informs of this. You see, the continuity that we're looking for in character and conduct that comes from above is only active in those who focus on the cross. What does that focus look like? Well, the Bible tells us in the wisdom literature, we have an entire section of books called that. In the wisdom literature, Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It all begins with whether or not I fear the Lord. 
Now, are we talking about just a fear that covers my face and I'm afraid that God is going to get me? No, we're talking about a reverential fear that sees God for who he is, and my faith informs my fear that God is one to be humbled before, that God is one to tremble before, because he is great and he is awesome and he is mighty. It all begins there. The first wisdom, the beginning of wisdom doesn't come because I've memorized the Bible backwards and forwards and I can recite the gospel in all of its iterations and I can see all the types of Christ throughout every text. The wisdom that comes from above begin with, does my heart kneel before God? Does it fear him? Does it look into the face of the Almighty and see reason that there is both a difference and a, a disconnect between us? And that needs to be resolved because I don't want to fall within the crosshairs of an angry God. But not just his anger, but does the sight of God, does the thought of God bring awe to my heart? The kind of awe that makes me go to my knees. That is where wisdom begins. And so wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. But the Bible informs us that that faith also, excuse me, that that fear also must translate to a faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 through 31 says this, And because of him, you are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not only should we move toward God with reverential fear, which is the beginning of wisdom, but we should move toward him with faith and see Christ as our wisdom. Why would Christ be the personification of wisdom? Because as we see God for who he is and we fear him and we say, Lord, what do we do with this? How do we connect with you? How do we have relationship with you? It is Jesus that fills in the blank. He is the how. What do I do with this knowledge that there is indeed a God and that I am not? What do I do with this knowledge that God is all that I need and I have nothing? What do I do with this knowledge that I am a a defenseless and helpless child and that he is a mighty and awesome father? How do I reconcile the two? Jesus is the how. Jesus is the how as he lays down his life and he says, come see me. I'll be your wisdom on how to have relationship with the father. This is how you do it. Follow my lead. Take on my burden. Look at how I live my life. This is our wisdom. It is in Christ. Live like him in absolute and total submission to the will of the father. And when we do that, we also hear the father's voice appealing to our hearts that when we see the Jesus, we, we see Jesus, we'll also take, we'll, we'll lay down our lives, we'll take up our cross, and we will follow him. When we live like Jesus, when we know him as our wisdom, we worship him. When we know him and see him as our wisdom, we want to be like him. When we know him and see him as a typification of wisdom, and we not only want, we want to shape our lives like him, we want, to, we want to appeal to the Father in much the same way that he does. We don't want to do life separate from the Father. And our heart begins to ask questions. We begin to, we, we, we get curious about this. And our focus becomes one like what Paul outlined in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How do we get this wisdom? We get this wisdom by completely and totally yielding our life to the Father in Christ, by taking, by putting on Christ. That's how we get this wisdom. If you've never come to know Christ as your Savior, the first step is, Lord, you're there. I want to move toward you in faith. 
What do I do? If I want to model my life after the Christ, first and foremost, look at the work of Christ. And it is Christ who gives up his life for all that would desire to not only just fear God, but move toward him and have their fears completely dissolved in the face of his great love and compassion. It is the Lord God Almighty who says those who would look at him and who would come to him in faith, look at my son. I, I want you to have relationship with me. And so here's how you have relationship with me. Here's how you take advantage of my wisdom. Lay down your life. Place faith in my son, Jesus Christ. Know him as your substitute because you can't lay down your own life and pay for your own sins. Someone else has to pay for him for you if you want to have relationship with me. This is the call of wisdom. This is the pull of wisdom from above. But even after that, the Bible tells us that we have to constantly and consciously focus on the things that are above. Our lives are filled and inundated with focuses and agendas. And on a daily basis, we must refresh our focus on the things that are above or else we are destined to operate out of selfish ambition and earthly wisdom. It is only wisdom from God that could cause us to put the interests of others ahead of our own. It is only wisdom from God that can transform our character so that our conduct isn't just a matter of compliance and trying to do good deeds and keep up with commandments, but it actually flows from who we are so that it's a continuity of both character and conduct. Only wisdom from God can actually transform the way that we think so that it isn't about just trying to, in a moment, look back at our diary and say, okay, what would Jesus do in this moment? But the Holy Spirit actually occupies us and is constantly informing our hearts and our lives on how we should move and how we should operate toward our fellow man in that moment. It is only the wisdom of God that can completely dissolve selfish ambition. Look at this final verse or listen to this final verse. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a beautiful list of adjectives, but I'm not interested in just having more adjectives, right? I'm not interested in just increasing my biblical vocabulary. God, how do we get these things in our lives? I want to be a person that operates in, in, in wisdom that is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. And these are all relational virtues. Have you noticed that, that peace, that keeping the peace or being one who makes peace, this is about relationship with my fellow man. Being gentle is about how I treat my fellow man. That being full of mercy is about how I treat my fellow man. That being impartial and sincere is how I treat my fellow man. This is all about what God is doing in my character and conduct to influence how I treat each one of you. Now, I mean, none of us would probably ever say that we're operating from earthly wisdom and that we're people who are evil and unspiritual. But I believe every one of us can know that there are times when we aren't always operating from wisdom that's from above. Wisdom that is derived from or for self-preservation. Every one of us has some aspect of self-preservation at work within us. And that is the thing that, that wisdom from above wants to dissolve. I'm going to pray. And I would ask that as I'm praying, that you would also join me in praying and saying, Lord, look over my life. Look over my life and show me where I'm operating from a worldly wisdom, a wisdom that's from below, a wisdom that's derived from maybe something that I read that wasn't gospel anchored. Uh, as our prayer team is moving to their respective um, spaces, if you're saying, you know what, I, I, just, I don't want to just pray by myself. I want to pray in community. I want to take advantage of what you just outlined as being one of the great advantages of Scripture, people caring for one another. And so as they're, as they're there, if you're not praying with someone 
along one of the walls. Would you pray with someone who's next to you? Father God, we come before you. We're thankful to you for your word and how it constantly informs us of our deep need for change. But not just change, oh God, not just behavior modification, but that we should adapt, Lord God, and submit to wisdom from above. We want wisdom that only you can provide. Your word told us, Lord God, earlier in chapter one, that if we wanted, all we had to do was ask for it in faith and you would give it. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would search and show us in our lives where worldly wisdom is still at work, driving our ambitions, shaping our appetites, and causing us to be people, Lord God, who in the moment is all about protecting me rather than living for the larger body. Lord God, as you show us those things, let us be swift to repent and not make excuses. We ask also, Lord God, if we're at a crossroads in life where we need your wisdom, we want your wisdom on how to, how to just move forward in some of the most basic and even, Lord God, complex decisions of life, we ask for wisdom and ask that you would give it to us in this moment. We need you, Lord. We declare our dependency even in the face of a deep need for wisdom. How should we think? What should we do with what we know to do? Because we know, oh God, that it isn't always common sense just because we know the right things. We want to be people who do the right things. Give us a wisdom that only you can provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.